Hello and thanks for joining us. My name is Chris Little. I'm the news director at KFI AM640 here in Los Angeles. And we're talking about the societal impacts of COVID-19, something that a lot of people may not have even thought about until today. And we're talking with Dr. Rhonda Meadows. She's president of Population Health at Providence. Uh, she leads Providence's Medicaid, Medicare, commercial and employer population health strategies, as well as the organization's value-based healthcare plans, population health informatics, government programs, care management, contracting, and community health partnerships. That is a huge job, Dr. Meadows. How do you do it all? I have an incredible team that makes me look good every single day. <laughs> and well, I have great partners in the community. I'm always fascinated, and I've told this to other people I've talked to uh, with Providence, I'm fascinated with the amount of experience people have who work for Providence, and you have a mind-blowing amount of experience. Can you run down some of that uh, for us? That, uh, you know, it, it'll help us understand what makes you uniquely um, ready for this type of job or qualified for this job that you do. So, Chris, um, we, we're all the sum of our experiences and then some. Um, I have done everything from uh, actually practice family medicine at Mayo Clinic and Kaiser. I'm mm -hmm. taking care of everybody from babies to grandmas. Um, as well as being the um, Secretary of Healthcare for the state of Florida, Commissioner of Healthcare for the state of Georgia, um, working for the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare for a while, um, working for United Healthcare and Optum um, on the, a broad array of different quality improvement and plan performance um, initiatives. I've been around the block a couple of times yeah. and made it to come right back, uh, but now I'm at Providence. Yeah, and um before, uh, you know, could you tell us a little bit about your role with Providence and what exactly it is that you do? I mean, I explained it, but now let's hear it from you. All of the things that you just li listed out actually amazingly come together. The whole idea about population health is to basically understand the people in our communities, regardless of their, their age, their health status, their health continuum, and regardless of who is paying for their medical bills, so regardless of their payer, and to basically understand not only where their health status is today, but where it needs to get to. Um, so we use um, an amazing array of analytics and data to try to inform our approach. And then we take that information and actually hone in on who needs to have their care better managed, who needs to be better coordinated, how do we get them access, how do we get them care. Um, and then just to make sure that we can continue to do this good work, we also do the work under value-based care and contracting to make sure we can financially sustain these programs and these systems. Uh, what are the communities you serve and uh, what sort of effect has COVID-19 had on them? So Providence extends all the way from Alaska down to Texas, seven states. Mm -hmm. And within those seven states are just an amazing array of different communities. Um, we, we know that when, um, when COVID first came and started in Washington State, we learned some hard lessons really fast and all had to lean in to be able to address the pandemic in its first, its first entry into the world here. Um, now we are actually using those lessons to actually make sure that as we see peaks in Oregon, California, in Texas, and in Alaska, we actually use what we learned in Washington to help people. Um, some of the effects that we're seeing when we use our analysis to figure out who bears the worst impact. Um, and if you think about it, we, we kind of mirror a little bit about what you're hearing coming out of the East Coast. Um, we know that um, Hispanics and Black Americans actually have higher rates of COVID positive tests. Um, we know that Hispanics, Blacks, and Native Americans also have higher death rates 
associated with the infection itself. So it's not um, just people in the nursing home. There's not people who just are elderly and have chronic comorbidities, but there is definitely a racial and ethnic disparity that impacts populations as well. Uh, and we talked about, or, or population health uh, deals with uh, interconnectedness between us all, I'm assuming. So can you explain that a little bit? So when we look at um, the information, we realize that um, then more African-Americans and more Native Americans had higher rates of illness and death. What we then take that information and use it to share with our clinical care teams, uh, but we also go beyond our facility and into the community itself. So that means actually meeting up with organizations that support people of color. And it could be a community health centers, it could be um, aging centers, it could be community centers for children, it could be any of those things. Um, it also means that for people who are um, both members of racial and ethnic groups that face disparities, if they are also socioeconomically disadvantaged, if they are poor, uh, if they recently lost their job and lost their insurance and reaching out to agencies to support them that way as well. That includes everything from food banks to shelters to homeless centers, right? Um, it also includes making sure that we are advocating for things like um, delaying evictions, um, things like making sure that additional funds are available for food banks, um, uh, making sure that we are advocating for all of the protections that we need for our people who are employed or who need to be employed. Um, it also means advocating for Medicaid program itself to continue and expand. And you touched on this a little bit, but um, as we know, there is a growing gap between the need for essential resources and the capacity to coordinate and meet those needs. Can you be specific in how you deal with that? Some of it is, um, is old-fashioned, picking up the phone and connecting with people. Some right. of it is actually a new fashion, which means expanding how we reach people through digital and tech, right? Everything from telehealth to telemedicine, um, even doing behavioral health or mental health services, either by digital. Right? Everybody's got a little PDA or a computer at this point, uh, but there's also um, the way to do it um, online through a variety of different resources. We use chatbots to help people actually ask about questions about what does COVID mean? What does the symptoms look like? How do I get care? Um, and we also do the work of actually then working with organizations, again, who are already embedded in communities. Right. Um, there's no reason why we have to create things new. And we have partners who we could actually fortify and actually give resources to. And resources can be people, it could be money, it could be tools, it could be computers, it could be masks, it could be disinfectants, right? right. It could be that yeah. simple. And Providence has been a leader in this, right? I mean, you have been at the forefront of uh, using this uh, new way, new technology, along with the old technology to care for people. I think we've been at it a little bit longer because, um, again, the first cases were here in Washington State, right? Um, our first case was January 21st, and then we had people in the nursing homes in February who became ill and who, who passed away because of the illness itself. I think it became an imperative to us to find that way, and there's nothing like adversity to make you find a new way. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the UN has described this pandemic as a human, economic, and social crisis. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I think that um, that's probably an understatement. <laughs> they are absolutely oh, yeah. correct, right? Um, so the pandemic itself is obviously, it's really clearly that it's not only public health, but the, when you think about the individual people and families, it's how their health status and their sickness can be impacted, right? Um, but at the same time, when we had to do the things like social distancing, working from home, 
all of those things changed how we work and then how we keep businesses open or not. Um, so now we are dealing not only with the pandemic, but with also recession, with unemployment. And that actually led to people being uninsured as well. So yeah. health, economic, easily, easily tied together. Uh, so it's a human rights crisis. It absolutely is. Um, and the more people are feeling isolated and socially disconnected, the more they're concerned about what the pandemic may do to them, um, their loss of job, their loss of livelihood, the disruption in their daily lives, um, the more it becomes an even greater human rights crisis. And it also becomes almost like a tinderbox for all of the social unrest um, and, and the protests that you are hearing now about racism, right? Yeah. Yeah, and we and, and we're hearing all you know about the protests and about COVID nineteen and uh, everything is, you know, up in the air and people want to get back to normal. Now it's interesting though, um, uh, as far as COVID nineteen goes, yeah, we want to get back to normal. But as far as racism and um, you know systemic racism and uh, things like that, you know, in general you really don't want to get back to normal. So on one hand, you want to get back to normal. On another hand, you don't want to get back to normal. How do we deal with that? So I got to tell you, Chris, I don't, I think there's going to have to be a very new normal across the board, right? Um, the pandemic itself has changed the way how we deliver healthcare already and how people actually can access care just by the, all, all the digital health things that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. It also made us basically move people from being hospital or facility focused to actually doing self-care, ambulatory care, and digital health. So that's already a new normal. Um, and that's not gonna go back. I don't believe it will go back to the way it used to be. Um, as far as um, the new normal for the economy and work and jobs, you're gonna find that quite a few of us have figured out that teleworking is actually allows us to be more productive in some aspects. Now there's some things where you need to be on site for, but I think we're gonna find that the way that we work whether it's in the healthcare industry or any other industries has changed as well. And sure. as far as racism, we should never be going back on that. We yeah. should never be going back on that. It didn't, racism didn't just start because of the pandemic or the um, unemployment and recession, but it definitely got amplified further. And sure. that is something that if, if we take anything from all, all of all of the upheaval and chaos that we've experienced, changing that dynamic, changing that aspect of our lives, would be worth it. And I know that's something that Providence is working on and, and, and something that uh, you have been uh, working on for your entire career. Um, I also know, you know, everybody, well, we all know, I guess, uh, I don't want to say it's just my knowledge, but everybody is facing uh, some sort of hardship in this pandemic, but statistics show there are differences in the way some populations are affected. So uh, what are those populations and what are those differences and how are you working to change that? There are disparities not only in healthcare, but there are disparities in employment, um, right. in insurance, and in living conditions, in access to food, nutrition, schools, jobs, and those have been longstanding and they are um, disparities that impact people of color. That includes Native Americans, Black people, and Hispanic people in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these things coming together have simply amplified those disparities to a level that you cannot possibly look away and not recognize. How do we deal with it? So this, I'm gonna to suggest to you that starting with uh, the pandemic itself on the healthcare aspect, um, that there are probably five key things that I suggest that we do right now 
to actually break the link of disparities that has been there for decades, right. if not hundreds of years. We are in the middle of a pandemic. We know the health disparities are there impacting and killing people of color. So why don't we do the hard work of number one, going out and doing the outreach education um, and connection to care that we should have been doing all along, even if that includes the use of telehealth and teleservices. Mm -hmm. The second is to make sure that testing is occurring right now locally in these communities. Um, we know that on the East Coast, tests that were being done for COVID did not make it into some communities until much later, right. which meant people didn't know and couldn't be treated or couldn't be treated effectively. The third thing is making sure that we not just tell people how to access care, but actually provide them with the access, right. um, whether it's telehealth or the clinic visit or the express cares or et cetera. Um, the fourth is uh, moving beyond simply talking about how important it is for everyone to be able to access care equitably, ensuring it so that when new drugs or medications become available to treat COVID, um, that they are available to anyone who needs them, regardless of where they're coming from. And finally, vaccines. When the vaccines become available, everyone's going to talk about who should get the first batch. How should the priority be made? And I'm going to suggest to you that the prioritization of frontline workers makes sense. Right. People in the nursing home make sense because they are frail and more likely to die from COVID. But I will also tell you that also who need to be prioritized are people of color who have extraordinarily high disease and death rates because of COVID. Again, that would be African-Americans and Native Americans both. One of your points was uh, testing. Um, why has it taken or why did it take so long for testing to get into some of these underserved communities? The same historic reason why it's taken just about any resource to get into these communities. They're usually last on the list. They're usually least um, resourced and least financed. If you were looking on the news, you saw a news story about a hospital in Brooklyn, Brookdale Hospital. Remember mm -hmm. that? Yep. They look like a war zone, yeah. right? They yeah. were overrun with people who were absolutely sick and did not have enough staff. They didn't even have basic mask, gowns, and equipment initially. Um, so much so that people were coming in and dying so fast. You remember this? They actually had a refrigerator truck out back. Yeah. To take the bodies out. Do you remember that? That is a traditionally undersourced health system, a hospital that has been there for forever. I know because that is in my old neighborhood where I grew up. Mm -hmm. They were under-resourced then. And I'm just going to let you know that 50 years later, don't age me, but 50 years <laughs> later, they are still under-resourced today, right? They didn't have anywhere near what they needed. You know, uptown, they may have had more resources, but not this place. And these places with low resources are in communities with people of color. And we can obviously, if you want to say, blame that on systemic racism. Systemic racism, yes, absolutely. Um, an inability or an unwillingness to actually just address it, um, okay. to go beyond studying it. We have lots and lots of studies about health disparities. And we need to get beyond simply, as my friend says, admiring the problem and actually work on actually intervening and stopping it. Um, and so the most basic way that I can think of for during the pandemic are the five steps that I just talked about. Right. But longer term, we have to do the work of actually finding out and a way to stop diabetes, heart disease, hypertension um, from being a killer for our pop populations and taking them from us at a much younger age. Yeah. 
I, I know it's not this simple, but uh, where is the major portion of this systemic racism coming from? Is it coming from society, which obviously I would imagine the answer is yes, or is it coming from the healthcare community? And then it's secondly, okay, both. And then secondly, what is the de dedication level in the healthcare community for these underserved uh, communities? I think you're gonna find that it's variable. They are some groups of, uh, of health professionals, social service workers, uh, this is their life work trying to uplift, trying to save, try to mitigate some of the harm um, to populations who are underserved and, um, and harmed the most. Um, I find that a lot of my colleagues throughout healthcare will actually rise up when, when given the information and say, well, we need to do something about it. Right. Um, but their dedication to actually doing something um, about something is, is totally different, right? That varies from person to person. And it also varies with the politics, um, with the resources available, um, and with the funding available, right? Um, but it's not enough to state that we need to stop and resolve health disparities. We have to actually act, intervene, resource, and fund it. Sure. I think a lot of people think that Hippocratic Oath uh, means doctors are going to, you know, be on the same team, but uh, they're not always on the same team. And I think that goes across all of us. Right, not yeah. just doctors, all, all across the healthcare industry and, and actually in society as a whole. We may all recognize when thing is, something is bad and something is wrong, but we don't all stand up to stop it. Sometimes we kind of look away. Right. Uh, how can you do more prevention, uh, outreach, and uh, more testing? I mean, those are two things that obviously need to be done. Providence has um, decided to lean in and as actually adding $50 million in additional funds dedicated to resolving health disparities and achieving health equity. Um, the $50 million will go a long way. It won't be all that we need, um, but it is really important. This sits on top of the usual community benefit or the community health work that we already have undergo undergoing. Uh, what we're asking um, our teams to do in the local um, regions and markets is to focus on not just studying health disparities anymore, but identifying the actual interventions for particular people to resolve a health disparity. And that means using our usual discipline, our operations, and our ability to measure impact so we can make sure that we are effectively doing it. Touched on this a little bit, but uh, what is the reason that racial or ethnic minorities or economically disadvantaged people of any background um, are more likely to get infected or develop severe disease or die? Uh, there are several, including um, long-standing long health disparities that have um, impact the health and well-being of people. Um, and that means uh, things like having diabetes, heart disease, hypertension start at a younger age and impacting more people in the community. That's one. Um, the second is um, difficulties with actually having access to those things that would keep us healthy. Nutrition, good food, exercise. Um, three is uh, the exposure that we would have um, to the virus to, based on the type of jobs we may have, right? If we are in the service line, we always talk about front line and service line. Right. If uh, more people of color are in the service lines, working in the grocery stores, working in the public works, doing all that type of work, then they are going to be exposed more, right, mm -hmm. to the virus. If you remember earlier on, they weren't wearing masks. We weren't particularly protected. Now more protections are in place. Um, 
And then finally, I would say there's, there's also an implicit bias that can occur in the health profession itself when someone comes in to the doctor's office, to the emergency room, and to the hospital. And that's something that we can actually stop by doing greater education information about what is culturally accepted and basically having people understand that discrimination and bias needs to be recognized and stopped, period. Right. I don't think a lot of people understand, um, you, you mentioned masks. Um, black men uh, in a lot of communities wearing masks out in public, uh, that's problematic for them. It's very problematic. I have uh, three um, young, handsome, tall black men who are my sons. Mm -hmm. um, and they are extremely reluctant to wear a mask, not because they're worried about looking cool, uh, but because they're worried about being perceived as an even greater threat by people who claim to be afraid of them. Mm -hmm. um, so they are a little bit concerned about that. Unfortunately for them, they live with their mom who is a doctor and who insists that their health be protected yeah. and that they actually act like good stewards in our society um, protecting against the pandemic. So we've come, come to a compromise. Um, they won't wear the black masks that are commonly sold in the store. Um, they will wear the white mask or the, the paper cotton looking thing that you that are distributed. Um, they're not happy about it. And, but I, you know what, all, all kidding aside, I understand sure. what their fear is, right? Yes. I totally understand. Um, but when you can um, be um, beaten, brutalized, or killed just by walking while black, driving while black, studying in a student lounge while black, bird watching while black, you got to imagine that putting a mask on pretty much adds a whole nother level of complexity to people being able to misinterpret who you are yeah. and not taking the time to actually converse with you and learning who you really are. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing to me, it's just a sidebar. I mean, we have discussions in our family about, um, you know, this kind of thing that we just talked about. And it's like, I don't get it. And, um, you know, I, I don't understand why people growing up, I mean, it's up to parents to teach kids that, you know, we're all interconnected and we all need each other. And I know you believe this in the healthcare system, but I, I, I just honestly still don't get it in 2020 why this happens. You don't get it, Chris, but you know that it happens, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because there's some people who actually act as if they don't even really believe that it's actually happening. And oh, so yeah. we usually we'll show them a couple of headlines and they're, they're, they're astonished. You know, when Mr. George Floyd was killed and that horrible video was circulating, was the first time that there, some people actually recognized what we, what we were saying was happening all along. That right. wasn't new, but right. it was an eye-opener. And um, it, it took his life and the impact on his family for people to kind of come to terms with it. Now, if you look at the news headlines on a regular basis, you see these stories and maybe now people are starting to believe that it's actually happening. No, I, yeah, I think the uh, video cameras and, you know, cell phones and all that is, has, uh, has, has really helped, uh, if you want to use that word. Um, systemic racism, back to that a little bit, and cultural bias, you know, we know that affects healthcare. Now, how is Providence actually dealing with that? I mean, we touched on that a little bit, but what, like you personally, how are you moving it forward? Two ways I think that, um, that Providence is, is trying to address this. Um, and, but, but even before we try to address it, there has to be the acknowledgement, right? right. Not only of what's happening outside of us, but also an acknowledgement within our company that we could do better, that we could learn more, 
And that's simply because we do a great job in delivering healthcare services in general does not mean that there isn't work to do to do a better job for vulnerable populations, particularly people who are impacted not only by health, health disparities, but by acts of implicit racism or bias. Um, and so we, if we have people have the uncomfortable conversation about acknowledging that there's a role for everyone in making the improvement, um, the better off we will be. We have work that has started on reevaluating and assessing how we do diversity and inclusion um, work in our workforce. Um, and that is really important. Um, for me, um, my heart and passion is on health equity of our patient populations. And so that's that work that I was talking about where the company is investing um, the $50 million in additional resources and funds to actually address not only the pandemic disparities, how do we get upstream and stop people from being harmed and dying during this pandemic, um, but also longer range, how do we actually interfere with uh, the continuous health disparities that have been with us for so incredibly long. And some of those health disparities are differential outcomes. And, uh, and, and so what are some of the possible underlying causes of differential outcomes of highly infectious respiratory illnesses like COVID-19 uh, in the disadvantaged population? I never even thought of it until today. Well, if you think about it, and let's say that you are, um, let's say that you're me. <laughs> right, okay. okay. Let's say that you're me. Um, I am a 50 something, and we're gonna leave it at that, um, <laughs> year old black female, right? Yeah. Um, I do have chronic underlying conditions, and even though I am not living in poverty, um, I actually do have risk factors. Um, so that makes me want to be even more cautious in actually being exposed to the virus itself. If I were to be exposed, um, given my own medical history, I'm pretty much assured that I would probably be pretty sick, right? Um, that means that I actually need to have good access to healthcare. I need to actually have healthcare providers who are listening to me, right? When I come I in, um, yeah. who are actually not only um, listening to me, but are giving me the best of care that's available. Um, that they're not too busy being distracted with what health insurance I have, but are focused more on actually my health status, condition, and needs. Um, and that's really a big, important piece. The other important piece is that I don't live in isolation. I live with the family unit, right? right? So if I have it, um, what are we doing to actually screen and assess people who live in my household, right? Um, so that's Part of that is testing, some of that is contact tracing. So all of those things that you keep hearing about in the news, those are very real. And those are really important tools. Now, let's say that um, a couple of generations back in my family, if, um, if that's the, let's say that that's the person that we're talking about, then we're talking about, well, in addition to being 50 something and having chronic conditions, I may not have access to nutrition. I may not have had a place to sleep that was safe warm and clean, right? I may not have had access to transportation to get to a doctor's office. I may not have had access to internet or a PDA with uh, mobile apps or whatever. Right. I may not have had all the tools that I would have needed to not only have me be um, screened and prevented from getting sick, from being diagnosed with the illness, having an early intervention, and then getting care before it's too late. When we started looking at the data within Providence itself, the first thing we noticed is that we were, we were seeing more deaths in the emergency room than in the hospital. That dynamic has changed. 
but it kind of raised the flag and the question as to whether or not people were coming in so late to get care that by the time they got in, it was too late for us to actually intervene. Mm -hmm. I read something the other day about uh, black women who are, you know, uh, not socioeconomically deprived, so uh, well-to-do black women, let's put it that way, having babies compared to uh, women, white women who came from poor backgrounds, the black women still died more often during childbirth. And is that some of the same reasons for that is what you just described? Some of the same reasons. And um, of course, I will tell you that personally, when I walk into a doctor's office, they have no idea what I do. They have no idea normally what I, whether I'm a professional. They have no idea what my insurance is, unless somebody points it out that I don't have insurance. Um, so there's, there's no way for me to be treated any differently. So when a Black woman who is a professional comes in and gets care, she gets subjected to some of the health, same health disparities and access restrictions that any Black woman would. Mm-hmm. There's nothing magical about our degree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're trying to end that. How are we going to do that? Uh, so first of all, it shouldn't be happening to anybody. Right. That's the number one thing. That's the whole goal. So it shouldn't really matter what I, where I am on education, um, profession, work, all those things. You should be treating anybody and everybody to the best of your ability. That's that implicit bias. That's that racism that kind of clicks in. That's right. people making assumptions, well, um, probably can't afford it, probably isn't insured, probably won't really make an impact. Right. That fatalistic thing that actually is not helpful um, in getting people uh, treated. On the other hand, um, I will tell you that um, when we talk about when people come in to be seen, to get care and get treatment, um, there's already a concern when a black person, a person of color is coming into a health system in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. This is not new. This is historic. This has been shown to us again and again and again. Right. Right. And so sometimes you, know, you feel revved up to try to, uh, to advocate for care for yourself. Um, and then sometimes there's, a, there's almost a, a heartbreaking just feeling of, you know what, I just got to do the best that I can with what I'm given because it doesn't get any better, no matter how hard we try. Yeah. And that is extremely unfortunate and unacceptable. And disheartening. Uh, We know that uh, consistent and prolonged stress affects a person's mental health and immune system. How does that come into play here? So um, I am trying to think of when I've had a more stressful time in my life um, than what we're going through now. Probably 9-11 would probably be about as close um, as we kind of talked about before. But you must imagine that um, when the pandemic first came, there was so much uncertainty, fear, and concern, right? Um, and as we're seeing some of the new peaks in caseloads go up, some of that gets regenerated. Add to that our change in our daily norms. It is stressful to suddenly find yourself not doing work the way you normally work, being at home, being socially isolated. Um, if you have kids or elderly parents, being with them 24 seven. Um, It's a dramatic change. All those stresses add up. Then you add in the impacts of people not being able to go to work. Job losses, right? Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother level of stress. 
Um, and then you add in, well, you know what, I am only going to be covered um, because I've been laid off for health insurance for 30, 60, 90 days. How do you afford COBRA if you can't even afford to pay your rent? All of these things just add up. It's like a constant beating, right, sure. coming at you. And so, um, you know, if it's one thing at a time, you have a little bit of a chance to recover and become resilient. Right. But this is additive. So this is when we, uh, we've made the effort to make sure that people, number one, know we get it. We recognize the stress. We acknowledge it. So how do we give you help, services, and support? How do we do this within our own family units and our own communities? But also, how do we use any of the, um, the telepsych behavioral health services? Um, oh, my goodness, all of the drug and addiction programs that have gone online to try to be there to help people. Um, the hotlines for domestic violence and child abuse, which, you know, the rates have escalated because people are trapped at home, right? Um, all of these things add up. But as long as we continue to keep adding a way out, a way to communicate, and a way to connect, we will do better um, with that. Um, I think it starts, Chris, with the acknowledgement uh, that it's okay to know that you are stressed, yeah. that you were not alone with it. Yeah. Well, and just related to that, I have read that uh, long-term stress affects the hormone cortisol, which can leave people with less biological energy and more fatigue. So maybe that's one answer to how this all plays together. Well, the fatigue, their immune system becomes compromised. They sleep worse. They eat worse, typically, right? Yeah. All those things kind of come together and kind of um, lower your ability to um, be protected against viral illness. Yeah. Uh, I, I know Providence has been addressing potential solutions to some of the bigger challenges. And one of those challenges is housing. Uh, can you explain uh, what effect housing has on healthcare and uh, what you're doing uh, in that arena? We consider housing part of health. Um, and it kind of makes sense if you think about it. If you don't have a place to, to sleep and live that is safe, clean, warm when you need it and cool when you don't, um, when you don't have a place like that, it's very difficult um, to take care of not only your wellness and prevention, but also managing chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease, right? Um, in the middle of a pandemic, you remember in the beginning when we were all talking about you need to stay at home, you need to do social distancing and you need to stay at home. Uh, but what if you don't have a home to stay in, right? Yeah. Um, so if you were um, homeless, you were living on the street or living in the shelters, you were particularly vulnerable to be exposed. You were particularly vulnerable to get the illness. And just given the nature of your lack of resources and poverty, um, you were particularly vulnerable to not getting care early enough to prevent more severe illness and death, right? Yeah. So um, Providence has um, already been doing the work of um, investing in things like Plymouth House, um, house homeless shelters, um, as well as quite a few others in each of our communities, from Alaska all the way down to Texas. Um, Providence also has almost two dozen transitional housing units as well. So when people can move out of shelters and then transitional housing, they have a little bit more of a reliable space to live in. Um, and then finally, um, there have been some efforts, both in the beginning of the pandemic and continuing on, to recognize that when people um, um, whether they're in shelters or they're living under a bridge or they're living in hallways or whatever, um, if we can't get them into an actual facility, we can still do the outreach to them to give them the most simple basic things like things to wash, to clean, to disinfect, 
and give them information about how to, um, to protect themselves from transition of uh, virus. We hold um, the free testing sites in our communities so people can come in and get tested for COVID and at the same time giving them health information and, and helping them understand how to connect with us for care. Uh, what about healthcare affordability and accessibility? I mean, that's a big challenge. That is a huge challenge. Um, and so for the people who are um, at the lowest income and who are already um, tremendously disadvantaged, um, providing like free COVID testing services and care and charitable care is actually something we've been doing for quite some time. And we just revved, revved it up with COVID itself. Um, at the same time, when people come into our healthcare facilities and clinics and doctor's offices, we do the work of trying to connect them in through Medicaid so they actually can have coverage. Mm -hmm. um, right, that actually addresses their limited income and resources. So we help them basically enroll, right? And that's yeah. a very good thing to do. We um, were doing that before, but now we're doing it even more because we knew that people who have previously been working and were covered are finding themselves unemployed and uninsured. Um, and rather than having them be exposed with no kind of coverage, we've been trying to get them enrolled as fast as we can in each of our states and communities going forward. Um, our health plan, likewise, has actually done the work of actually realizing that we would just have to um, reduce premiums right, um, to make yeah. it worthwhile, right, for people to try to continue on if they can, right? right? Particularly in the individual market and the small group that supplies insurance products to small businesses, how do we lower those costs uh, for those insurance plans? That way we can maybe try to keep some more people enrolled there as opposed to joining the ranks of the unenrolled, uninsured, and um, headed toward Medicaid. Uh, how are you addressing underlying health conditions? You know, um, we have been trying to, um, to address the underlying conditions like diabetes and hypertension and heart disease in, in a variety of ways. And like I said, we've been um, leveraging all of the investment we have made in telehealth and telepsych and all of those kind of services. Um, but I think probably the other big thing is actually working with community partners who can um, connect with communities normally that we would not see unless they came into the hospital or emergency room in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of get upstream of the, of the management of the chronic condition before it becomes an emergency or requiring a hospital stay. And that's been most of the focus. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it means um, helping them get access to discounted medication, right, so they can actually afford it. Um, sometimes it means connecting them with FQHCs, with um, community clinics, um, and sometimes it simply means um, literally doing the work of making phone calls and connecting them with other resources. Yeah. I, I know Providence um, works with a lot of data and analytics, and uh, you're using that data and analytics to uh, work on all of these solutions. Uh, can, uh, tell me how you're doing that. Well, one example is... Um, we, when we did the health disparities assessment for COVID, um, we had already been doing health disparities assessment for other chronic conditions also. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually know our population. We have about 5 million patients across the seven states. Mm -hmm. um, but we already know where there are social economic disparities and where there are racial and ethnic disparities and where they overlap. We know by community, we know by zip code, we know by city block where people live. So that means actually being targeted and where we put the interventions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you were in Alaska and we know that there is a large percentage of people who are homeless in Alaska, I'm just gonna suggest to you that the only place on earth I can't think of, no, that's probably the worst place on earth to be homeless is in Alaska, yeah. okay, yeah. right? So that means that we invest 
in, um, in the shelters that are right there in traditional housing, right? And we make it so that it's really easy that when people come in acutely ill in the emergency room in the hospital, how do we literally shuttle them to these places once they are clinically stable? Mm -hmm. And don't just put them there, but then bring follow-up care to where they are. You know, the COVID-19 crisis is going to continue to be a challenge, uh, you know, to vulnerable populations and communities and, you know, disproportionate ways long after the infection numbers peak. What do you see in the future? Well, I mean, what's the plan after, after all said and done? What are we going to do? So I think a couple of plans. Um, one of them for, from the healthcare perspective is we've already, we've already pivoted from our old way of providing care being more hospital-centric to being ambulatory, digital, and community-based care-centric. Mm -hmm. That is the number one thing that I can tell you that's coming out of this. Um, the telehealth services, um, the ability to reach people um, through digital apps and PDAs and iPads or whatever has made a huge difference in our outreach. People who traditionally would be shy about doing it, um, not only experienced it as a way to connect, but embraced it. That is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. um, as far as, um, uh, how, how are we going to work differently? I think a lot of us are going to find ourselves quite comfortable doing teleworking and continuing it. We're already doing it now. Uh, I know within my own team, we looked at what everybody is. Do they have the resources to do teleworking effectively? And were we at least as productive? You know what? We're more productive. Um, and I probably speak to people a lot more now <laughs> than I ever did before. Um, because we've made an actual effort to stay connected. It's almost like there's a self-consciousness to being in a pandemic with, where social distancing is being um, emphasized to work even harder to connect uh, through teleworking. Um, and so we have our, our virtual happy hours. We have our yeah. team meetings. Um, we have our social events this way, and it works beautifully. Um, not everybody gets the opportunity to telework, though. And those are the people that I worry about most, right? Um, I've seen um, some businesses try to make the effort so that when service line folks or frontline folks in the store, in the post office, or wherever, wherever they are, try to keep them safer by doing the social distancing, the little stars on the floor, the plexiglass windows, the, all of that kind of stuff. I think yeah. that's going to be with us for a while. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned telehealth uh, more than once, and I've been... Providence is, like I mentioned earlier, I think is one of the uh, forerunners on this. And how has that affected uh, healthcare? At least, you know, maybe COVID-19 related. I mean, uh, has it, is it saving a lot of money and helping people at the same time? Or are we still trying to figure that out? So um, it, it usually is less costly than an office visit, right? To, to do a telehealth visit, although, um, uh, through the federal government and through all the COVID funding, we're actually getting a little bit of parity on that. Um, but what I find is that telehealth's benefit is, runs two ways. If I'm the clinician, the physician, actually trying to stay connected with my patient population, this allowed me to do it at a time when people were justifiably concerned about coming in for a doctor's office, right? Mm -hmm. If you remember way back in February and March when we did not have enough uh, personal protective gear and masks, mm -hmm. right? We yeah. actually had to shut down offices and clinics because we couldn't protect not only the staff and the clinicians, but we couldn't protect the patients as well, right? And there was kind of like a, like a week or so, though, 
when it felt like, well, where did our people go? Where did our patients go? And our patients were probably saying, well, where's my doctor? Where's my nurse? Where's my health professional? Right. We're in the middle of a pandemic. How am I supposed to connect? I can't go to the hospital unless I'm really, really ill, right? Um, so somewhere in the time, I think, of the March timeframe, um, an amazing effort was made by many people at Providence to get, I think it's something like 7,000 physicians onto telehealth as opposed to where we had been before. So we went from maybe a couple hundred visits to thousands each day through telehealth. Um, and that actually proved to be quite, quite amazing. A lot of um, us old folks <laughs> who like to see, yeah, who like to see people in person. Um, I will have to tell you that um, I've been a champion for telehealth for a long time. And I understood the benefit from a clinician to a patient, but it wasn't until I actually was the patient calling in did I finally get how much easier it was for me? Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because I didn't want to do telehealth and uh, I had to see the dermatologist for something and they said, well, take some pictures and send them in. I'm like, oh, how can you tell? So I took <laughs> pictures and sent them in. The doctor called me back and said, hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. <laughs> Come in in a couple of weeks and we'll take care of it. And it was great. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, I have insurance, so I didn't even have to have, there's no copay. Yeah. So. It's all taken care of. I think um, I called uh, my physician. My physician was new to telehealth, and I was new as being a patient on telehealth. Um, and so when I had my appointment, I said, well, wait a minute, I don't have to travel. There's no parking. Right. I'm not in a waiting area. All I have to do is dial in. Um, for the first time in the five years that I've known him, I actually saw him laugh on <laughs> camera. Uh, because I think when we were trying to figure out um, our camera angles for the do the telehealth, I think I said something like, that's a lovely left ear that you have. Can I see the rest of your face? <laughs> and um, there, was, there was an ease and a comfort that I was not expecting. And it was really, really wonderful. And you know what? I had his full attention for that that's full cool. 10, yeah. 15 minutes, right? Yep. So much so that he was like, is there anything else I can do for you? And you know, normally, he might have been more pressured. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was a great experience. Yeah. And I think I, I, I would say the same thing from my experience as well. So I've, I've had a change. I've had a paradigm shift. A lot of people want to help, but uh, they don't know how. So, what, you know, what is your advice to them? So I, I think I understand that emotion. I know the first couple of weeks of, of this whole thing, I kept feeling like I wasn't doing enough myself, right? right. Yeah. And so what I try to do is myself and what I've told my friends to do is, um, you know, there is there is a benefit to all those, um, those internet and web surfing skills that you have developed over the years. You can right, actually yeah. find organizations that require not only your, your money and your finances and your donations that right. way, but they also do value some of the skills you have, right? If you are a great person to organize, maybe you can organize the people who are making the cloth mask and connect them with the actual organizations that need the cloth mask, like mm -hmm. the shelters or the service line workers, right? So um, money and funding and everything is fine for the community organizations, and they really do need that ongoing support. Uh, but there's also the, the donation of your skills, of your, of your expertise, of your tenacity in attempting to create something that is absolutely needed. Um, there's also the benefit of the innovative minds. Um, did you see the, the young man who, um, teenager who created the band that goes around the head that holds the face mask on for doctors so they don't have that string or oh, yeah. elastic around their ears right that came out of a brilliant mind 
that was sitting at home, right? A right. young, brilliant mind. So that kind of, that innovation, those ideas actually contribute to something. Um, and then there are people who are doing the work of actually helping people stay connected, either by phone or by web. They are hosting chat rooms, they're hosting conference calls, they're hosting, and they're doing it with people who they ordinarily may never have ever met or known. Um, and so, and it's, so it's not, some of it is formal group therapy, but some of it is actually just support groups that have, that have just spontaneously come up. Yeah. Um, my favorite is watching um, a group on, um, on TikTok, the one that's actually organized by a grandma who has a grandma circle of friends and they entertain themselves, right? Um, and then um, there are people who use any and all of the above to help people who are um, isolated physically, like like residents of nursing homes, right? Sure. To connect and chat with them. Yeah. And that is really appreciated by them. Uh, before we wrap it up, uh, just one thing stuck into my mind, and uh, it was when I was doing research yesterday and talking to you today, is systemic racism. If you could just say, hey, here's one thing you can do uh, to help this tumble. What, what would that be? What, what, give me an idea or two. What, how can I help? How can somebody watching help? What can we do? So I'm gonna say a couple of things. One, actually have an honest conversation with me. It may feel awkward at first, but I, I have found that the, um, the people who contacted me, who probably thought, you know, she's probably not gonna to wanna to hear from me, but he said something to the effect of, I don't know what to say. I don't know that I really realized what was going on, but I want you to know that I care about you. I'm sorry this has happened. I wish it never happened. I don't know how to stop it. And I'm, I'm afraid I'm gonna say something wrong that will hurt you more. And my first response was, you know what? I think I love you, man, okay? Mm -hmm. Because that actually was the connection that I needed to get from them. Um, and they were very honest and very open and vulnerable about it. That's probably number one. Um, the number two thing is when you see either uh, passive or aggressive uh, racist acts, bullying, those kind of things happen, you must speak up. You must say something. You, I mean, I would normally say we'll call the police, but if it's the police that's causing the brutality, you still need to figure out who to call because it cannot remain silent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that has been part of the ability for it to grow so much is that people haven't paid attention. And I'm talking about people who are not black. I'm talking about white people having a recognition of it, okay? Um, my sons have known about this since they were babies, mm -hmm. right? It's not new to them. What's new to them is that it's being done in a way where people are not even fearing that they're going to be stopped, interrupted, held accountable, arrested, or convicted of it as a crime. And it is a crime, it's a hate crime. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is um, opening yourself up to different experiences. I've seen a host of different uh, things about um, black history, right? Um, and a lot of people said, well, we didn't know anything about 1921 Tulsa. We didn't know anything about what yeah. happened in Mississippi or Memphis. The only thing we've done is we've, we knew about MLK because he was in the history books. So opening up your, your mind, expanding your horizons, learning a little bit more, um, and learning more about other cultures too. So African Americans is where we started the conversation, but it applies to Native Americans as well. Yeah, yeah. It's all about having a paradigm shift. 
definitely. Well, Dr. Rhonda Meadows, president of Population Health at Providence, it has been uh, my real pleasure to talk with you today. And I, I, I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate what you're doing and um, thank you so much. Chris, take good care, stay healthy and stay safe. All right, we'll talk some other time. Okay.